<clears throat> Today I want to talk to you about a very important subject, biblical grace. Biblical grace. Grace is, a, is one of those funny words, okay? It's, um, in the English language, grace is a, is a word that is used in many different ways, many, many different ways. And it can be used to mean many different things. It can be used to describe a swan or a dancer or, or you know, saying grace before a meal or whatever. It just has all these various meanings, dozens of them. Words that are used in this way tend to end up having no real meaning at all. Another example is nice. It's used in so many different ways. What does nice mean? It doesn't really mean anything. Well, did you like the ice cream? It was nice. What's she like? Well, she's nice. It just, you know, it's one of those words. It doesn't have a whole lot of meaning because it's kind of thrown away there. Well, the Bible uses the word grace. So it's a word that we ought to be concerned about and interested in, uh, at least the translations that we have. And it, it, it tells us that grace is vital to our salvation. Go to Ephesians 2, verse 8. Ephesians 2, verse 8 says, quite simply, boldly, and plainly, for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not by works so that anyone can boast. So understanding what grace means helps you and me to understand how our salvation is accomplished. And to explore this subject today in more depth, what we're going to do is we're going to try and cut through all the clutter and all the various misunderstandings about grace, and we are going to understand what the Bible means when the word grace is in play, when it is used. And we're going to do that by looking how the word grace is used in Scripture. We'll see where it's used in Scripture. What's the context? What's the outcome? Is there any reason why grace, God's grace, would be extended to one person over another? Go to 1 Peter 5, verse 12. This comes at the end of a longer section which we'll circle around to toward the end of the message. Uh, Paul is talking to the church, specifically to the leadership of the church here. And toward the end of it, after going through some various serious stuff with them, he concludes with some parting thoughts, some final thoughts. And he says in verse 12, with the help of Silas, who was there working with him in the ministry, with the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you, and testifying that this, all that stuff that he's mentioned before, is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. There's a lot in there. Um, it is possible, it is possible for you, me, it is possible for us to have a false idea of God's grace. Your Creator wants very much for you to have a trustworthy and reliable understanding of grace, among many other things, and to stand firm in it, as Paul, I'm sorry, Peter is saying here. And to say that there's true grace, as he, as he says here, this is the true, I want you to understand the true grace, well, that implies that there's false grace as well, does it not? To understand grace is to understand how we attain salvation. 
Yet, the subject of grace is also one that can be very controversial. It can be very controversial because of the way in which the word and the concept are misused. Perhaps that's the false grace that's implied by Peter. I intend to show you that it kind of is. But I'll wait, and you can hold on, and that'll be a surprise bonus. You might have heard of grace described in various different ways. Uh, you might have heard it described as God's unmerited pardon. Heard that? God's unmerited pardon, or simply grace is considered to be, well, God's never-ending forgiveness for sin. But these, these, while true, are only a small portion of the entire picture of biblical grace. I put it to you that forgiveness, for example, forgiveness for sin, God's forgiveness of sin, is more an outcome of his grace rather than grace itself. In the same way that winning is the outcome of running fast, but they're not the same thing. That's kind of my approach to it. Forgiveness is the outcome of God's grace. It isn't the sum total of God's grace. Let's go to Genesis 6, verse 8, and we'll look at the first appearance of grace in the Bible. This is about Noah. It says, very simply in verse 8, okay, well, you know the story. God looked down and he's seen a lot of sin, and, and <laughs> he decided that he was going to do something about it. He was grieved. And uh, he was going to wipe humanity out. He was going to have the flood. He was going to basically push the reset button on, on the whole thing. But it says in verse 8, Noah found grace. He found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So Noah was very literally saved by grace. It's also important when looking at this particular reference, way back at the very beginning there in the book of Genesis, to understand that grace is not limited to the New Testament. Grace is not some new concept that was only introduced into God's revelation and God's teaching and, and what he wants you to understand. It wasn't something that just popped out after the death of Christ. Grace is actually how the Creator has dealt with humanity all along, in every instance, from the very beginning. Fundamental concept, not a new one. It's there from the very beginning. So this Hebrew word that, uh, of course, you know, the Old Testament is written in Hebrew, and there's this word there, Noah found grace, favor. The Hebrew word there is uh, chen. <laughs> That's a my attempt to sound Hebrew, Ken, uh, C-H-E-N, you can look it up, whatever, Ken. And it means, if you look it up in one of the well-known Bible dictionaries, it means favor, grace, acceptance, unmerited favor with God. And it's very frequently translated as grace, but it's also just as frequently translated as favor. God's favor. And like most Hebrew words, this word, ken, is uh, derived from a word picture. That's kind of how the, the Hebrew language is really focused. It's focused on very concrete examples, and it's focused on a word picture here. The picture being of uh, one person 
stooping down to help another person. To help another person who's kind of their social inferior, if you will. Offering help to a person in need when that person has no reason to expect any help at all. They have no reason to expect any assistance or anything from this other person. Now, you could think of grace as being in a person's good books, on their good side, right? Just having a favorable relationship with another person. You know, when they, when they see you coming down the street or they see you out, out in the neighborhood, they smile. You know, there's people like that. You see them and you think, oh, <laughs> there's Joan. Oh, she looks great, you know. I'd love to see her. And, you know, when you feel that way, you have this favorable feeling about someone, this favorable relation with someone, you know, you're willing to overlook minor flaws that, that might be in that person and, and to work together with them in a positive way. You know, you want them to succeed and they'll probably help you out when you need a little bit of help. So grace is this really important ingredient in relationships. It, it's a very important relationship builder. It's wonderful to have that between, in the relationship between husband and wife. You could, you, you know, it really will help the relationship be positive and successful. Uh, your next door neighbor, for example, co-workers, if you have this positive, good relationship with them, it smooths over some of the rough spots. And, uh, you know, because they come up in relationships. You know, little things annoy you, and other people get annoyed by stuff you do. And when you have this positive relationship, you kind of, you know, you're willing to overlook those things. And on the flip side, if you have a negative relationship with people, every little thing they do that bugs you becomes a big deal. You know, if you're out, you're out blowing the leaves off your yard, right, and you blow a few leaves in your neighbor's yard, well, you're, you know, if you have a positive relationship with your neighbor, they're probably just going to say, ah, no problem, you know. And maybe next week I'll be blowing my leaves and some will end up in your yard. And it's okay, as long as you're not, you know, as long as you're not taking advantage of people. So you have this positive relationship and things go well. But then, of course, you might have experienced this where you have a neighbor who is definitely not like that. And you blow a few leaves in their yard. And next thing you know, the door opens. And they're coming out the front yard, standing on the porch looking at you, tapping their foot. You've blown leaves in my yard. Because it's not a good relationship. It's kind of a negative relationship. And every little thing just bugs you. You bug each other or they bug you or whatever. So think of grace as having this good relationship, a positive relationship. A positive relationship with your creator. Go to John 15, verse 15. Here in the long, long discourse from Jesus toward the end of his life, he's speaking uh, to the disciples in this case. And he says something to them about this. He says, I no longer call you servants because a servant doesn't know his master's business. Instead, I call you friends for everything that I've learned from my father, I've made known to you. It's the kind of positive relationship that God wants to have with you. He wants to have a positive relationship with you. He wants to be able to look at you and smile when you're walking his way. And likewise. Now, think of Noah. Let's get back to Noah. I put it to you that God did not save Noah because he was the only person on earth who had never made a mistake. 
That was not why God saved Noah. We know from Scripture that everyone has fallen short of the glory of God. Everyone's made a mistake. Everyone's messed up. And Noah, you know, while he is reported as a very righteous man in Scripture, you know, he had his shortcomings, and there's some things there that we know about him. But God had a positive relationship with Noah. They had a good relationship. There was something about this man, Noah, that pleased God. There were certain traits, certain things about him. Let's take a look at Hebrews 11, verse 7. We don't read a lot about anyone in particular in the Bible, really. Um, we know a little bit, but what we do know is very important. We need to meditate on it and think about it. It says in verse 7, By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, stuff that's coming up, in holy fear, he built an ark to save his family. And by his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of righteousness that is in keeping with faith. So here's Noah, and he's a man who walked uprightly before God, and he was humble enough to act on God's warning. So when God came, told him something was going to happen, he acted upon it. Other people all around in that society were warned, and they didn't do anything about it. Even though the ark, they didn't even have to build their own ark. They wouldn't get in, though, because they wouldn't humble themselves. They wouldn't listen, even when they were warned. Noah had to respond. He had to respond on what he was given to know. Let's, let's uh, discuss two ways, two ways of responding when God reaches out to you through grace. He, takes the, he makes the first move. He reaches out to you, extends the right hand of fellowship, reconciliation, Let's talk about how we respond to God's grace and kindness. Number one, conduct. Conduct. Psalm 84, verse 11. It says that the Lord God is a sun and a shield. So he's a light and he's a shield. And the Lord bestows grace, favor, honor, and no good thing does he withhold from those whose walk is blameless. Your God, your creator, the one who made you, who's working with you, he wants to give his favor to you. He wants to. He wants to shower you with good things. Now, just so you know, he is especially favorable towards those who conduct their lives by his standards of righteousness. No good thing does he want to withhold from those whose walk is blameless. Now, God is graceful to, even to people who do not walk blamelessly. He has to reach out to people even while they are yet sinners. But I put it to you that he is especially favorable towards those who walk in his way. Those who conduct their lives according to his standards of righteousness. Now, with grace as the subject... It is also very important to understand that God wants you to know, he wants me to know, everyone to know, that he doesn't owe you anything. He is not obligated to do anything for you. Nothing. He doesn't owe you a thing just because you're trying to live righteously. He doesn't owe you anything. That's just the way to live. We'll circle back on that. 
Second thing about responding to God. Attitude. Attitude. Go to Proverbs 3. Proverbs 3, verse 34. And it says here, he, that being God, mocks proud mockers. But he shows grace, favor, chen, if you will, to the humble and the oppressed. The wise inherit glory, but fools get only shame. God gives gifts, favor, uh, grace, based on attitude as well. Attitude. And uh, this proverb here is actually quoted twice in the New Testament. Let's, let's take a look at them. James 4, verse 6. James 4, verse 6 quotes this same, this same little verse. So it's an important concept. It's quoted twice in the, in the New Testament. But he gives us more grace, and that is why Scripture says God opposed, opposes the proud, but showers grace on the humble, favor on the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil. He will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, wail. Change your laughter to mourning, your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Let's take a look at the other one. 1 Peter 5, verse 5. So Peter quotes the same one. I think the repetition here is a, a good indication of importance. Speaking to the congregation, and this is the verse I mentioned that I would circle back to, larger discussion of grace. Peter says, in the same way, you who are younger, so he's talking to the congregation, he's talking about church life. He says, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. All of you clothe yourselves with humility, because this is kind of the grease, the balm that's going to make this congregation function better. Humility. Clothe yourself with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but shows favor, grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. We learn from these two quotations a couple of things. One is that this Old Testament concept of grace carries over into the New Testament. They're picking up these ideas about grace and humility from the Old Testament. And you also learn that this word chen, <laughs> grace, favor, translates into the Greek word charis, which we'll come back to. These two ideas, these two concepts work together. Um, You've got to have them both. Walking in righteousness and humility. They work together. They work together. You really have to have both. Think of it this way. God is not pleased with a person who is righteous, but who is not humble. You go through the teachings and the warnings and the admonitions of Jesus Christ himself, and he had an awful lot to say about this, this mix here. Someone who's righteous but who's not humble is not pleasing to God. On the other hand, neither is God pleased with a person who's humble but who does not act in a righteous way. So someone, someone can be very you know, humble and think, you know, I'm not much, but be a, you know, a crackhead and a prostitute. 
And what would Jesus say to such a person? Well, I'm going to put words in his mouth here, but I think they're, you, you understand. He would probably say, go sin no more. You've got to have them both. Humility and walking in righteousness. God wants, it. He wants the whole deal. <laughs> he wants them both. Let's take a look at God's deliverance of Israel. We're trying to put together a full picture here of biblical grace. So we're going to go back to the Old Testament here in Jeremiah 31 verse 2. And this verse is a good one. It kind of gives us an opportunity to see God's perspective on the whole Exodus story. And, uh, you know, what was God thinking when he drew these people out of Egypt? And in Jeremiah 31 verse 2, we read this. It says, The people who survived the sword found favor in the wilderness, and I came to give rest to Israel. So you could say the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness. And perhaps your translation says just that. It's that word, chen. And I came to give rest to Israel. It's part of a longer section here where God is trying to uh, re reassure Israel after some terrible things have happened to them as a nation. That, uh, yeah, you know, my grace is still there and I'm still going to keep working with you people. I've done it before. I'm going to do it again. Let's go to Deuteronomy 7, verse 7. So when God drew these people out from Egypt, why? Was it because they were, like, the best people? He's going to take the cream of the crop, and he's going to draw the cream of the crop out, and he's going to do some awesome stuff with them? No. Deuteronomy 7, verse 7. Before they're going into the land, here they are, they're, you know, poised, ready after 40 years of wandering to head into the promised land. And they get some uh, warnings from God through Moses. And it says, the Lord did not set his affection on you, Israel, and choose you because you were more numerous than all the other peoples. You were not the, you know, because you were a great nation. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept, oh, wait a minute, I, I missed a section, um, he did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. You were not great. You were nothing. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath that he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh the king. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is faithful keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. So he did it because of his favorable, positive relationship with Abraham. That's how God works. That's how he rolls. Go to Zechariah 12, verse 10. Oh, actually, no. Go to, uh, first go to Exodus 34. This grace that we're looking at in the Old Testament is an expression of the very nature of God, who and what he is, which is another reason why it's important for us to really understand the fullness and get a full biblical picture of what this grace is. Exodus 34, verse 6 through 7, God, uh, Moses has asked, you know, he's had all these interactions with God. And at some point he says, so do I get to see who I'm dealing with? <laughs> Can I see you? And God says, well... Ah, we can't quite do that. I'll let you see me from an angle. 
right? Not head on, not my face. I'll let you see me from an angle, from, from rear view, right? That's, a, that's as close as you get. And then in Exodus 34, verse 6 and 7, we hear what happens when it happens. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. So when he was showing himself to Moses, he was also saying, this is my character, this is my personality, this is who I am. Gracious, patient, abounding in love, faithful, maintaining love to, to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. So he's also just. Go to Zechariah 12. This is a prophecy, yet future. So God is to be understood by us as gracious. And we also know that God is the same today, yesterday, and tomorrow. He doesn't change. He's the same today, yesterday, and tomorrow. And looking forward into the future, when he restores Israel, he says this in Zechariah 12, verse 10, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. So this is that time that's happening during the millennial period after Christ has returned. And this grace is poured out on these people who have no reason to expect it because they've been bad. <laughs> they have not been good people. Uh, but God is gracious. He's very positive. God's nature doesn't change. He's going to be the same in the future as well. He's always this way. He is God. He'll continue to extend grace even in the future. Of course, if you read on the context here, where the people hear this, in verse 11 it says, On that day, the weeping in Jerusalem... Oh, wait a minute, I should back up. Okay. I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication, and they will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn child. And on that day the weeping in Jerusalem will be as great as the weeping of Hadad Rimon, in the plain of Megiddo. And it goes on to talk about mourning. The people of Israel will realize what a terrible mistake they have made. They have made a colossal mistake by rejecting the very Messiah that they were promised. And they will repent. They will weep. They will mourn. They will have a good response, if you will. And once again, we see the connection here of God's grace attached to a change of attitude. Because they're, they're, they're seeing what they've done and they repent. A change of attitude. Humility. And a commitment to walk in God's way. A positive response to God's grace. Okay, let's go to grace in the New Testament. The place where all the trouble begins. <laughs> As I mentioned earlier, the New Testament, I know I bring this up a lot, but it is important to remember, it's written in Greek. All right? It's written in Greek. And so the word that we read in the English language is grace, comes from a Greek word, and that Greek word is charis, as I mentioned. You know, like we would use in charisma, charis. And uh, it means roughly the same if you go to one of these uh, you know, Bible dictionaries or something like that like vines, for example, it would say the definition is, you know, roughly the same thing as can, favor, 
acceptance, receipt of God's gifts and blessings. Now, the first appearance of grace in the New Testament, if you think of the New Testament and the events that it's recording, not the sequence in which the books were written, the first place grace appears is when Christ is born. Go to Luke 2, because that's the beginning, if you will, of the whole New Testament story. The New Covenant story begins with Christ. And uh, in Luke 2, verse 40, we're not talking about the actual birth here, but we're talking about him as a child. He's very young. He's a little, little child. And Joseph and Mary have gone through the, you know, the rituals of bringing a child into the world and so forth. And it says in verse 40, And the child, that being Jesus, grew and became strong, and he was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was on him. Now, God's desire... To, he had a very strong desire to protect, to nurture, to care for this little boy, Jesus. Uh, because he loved, he loved the boy. And uh, I think also because uh, Jesus had a mission <laughs> and he needed to accomplish it. But God was filled with grace towards this child. Now, in this application of grace, when you see grace applied here, it must be understood that grace is far more than forgiveness of sins. It has to be, does it not? It has to be more than just forgiveness of sins. The logic is pretty clear. Jesus never sinned. He didn't need forgiveness. So God's grace was on him in a big way. God's grace was on him abundantly. So it's about something bigger broader than just forgiveness of sin. Let's think of it this way. I mean, if I say, I am under grace, or, you know, you say, I'm under grace, or we are under grace, or we are saved by grace, or something like that. When we say that, it means far more than forgiveness of sins. That's part of it, but it means more. It means far more. And thinking of this example of God's grace being on this boy, Jesus, yeah, it's got to be more than just forgiveness of sins. It's, it's bigger. It's bigger. I mean, forgiveness is only one of the ways that God's grace toward you is expressed. It's true, it's real, but it's only one of the ways that it's expressed. God's grace also expresses itself in blessings and gifts. Goodwill, if you will. Let's take a look at blessings and gifts. To do that, we're going to look at grace and law. Grace and law. One of the greatest gifts that God gives you, humanity as a whole actually, is enlightenment. That is one of the greatest gifts that he gives you. Enlightenment. A light that shines in a dark place. That's a gift from God. Now, I mean, you might have preferred a new Porsche, maybe. <laughs> you know, uh, $100,000 magically showing up in your bank account or something like that. But that would be short-sighted since, uh, you mean, you can't take a Porsche with you beyond the grave. You know, it'll stay behind. It, before then, it's probably going to be a rusted-out hunk of junk anyways. It would be short-sighted. God's greatest gifts 
are everlasting. They last forever. He gives you his commandments, for instance. He gives you his commandments, a way of living that leads to peace and joy, a light that shines in the dark places. He gives you his spirit, which is the power to understand, conviction, sometimes a little prod, to apply his word. Again, a light in a dark place. He provides a means whereby the penalty for your sins, your transgressions, and your mistakes can be paid for you without costing you your eternal life. And he gives you understanding of his plan, hope, his plan of salvation, what lays ahead, resurrection to life everlasting. So these are just some examples, if you will, of God extending his grace to you. He doesn't have to enlighten you. He doesn't have to provide a payment for your sins. He doesn't have to do any of those things. He doesn't have to provide you with eternal life either. But he does. He does. And it should be understood as an expression of his positive, forward-thinking, and gracious nature. Because that's how he rolls. Let's take a look at grace and overcoming sin. Go to Romans 6, verse 14. For sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under law, but under grace. Now this is a verse that is very often used to teach wrongly, that we don't need to think very much about God's commandments. Because we're not under law, we're under grace. Some things that I've heard over the years, um, you know, why should I worry too much about violating the commandments? I mean, <laughs> I know God's, he's going to forgive me anyway. So, you know, I, I kind of obey him, uh, but I'm not, I'm not too worried about it because, you know, He's going to forgive me anyways. There was a, a writer, a German guy, this uh, 200 years ago, named Heine. And uh, he was dying. And, you know, people were asking him, aren't you, because he had not lived a great life. People were asking him, aren't you afraid of dying and judgment and all that? And he says, oh, no, God will forgive me. That's his job. Now, I don't know if he really believed that or not. He was just trying to be a, you know, a, a bit of a wag until the very end. But it's kind of the same idea. Well, God has, he's going to forgive me. That's what he does. So I don't need to worry too much about it. Okay. Another take on that is, uh, you, you might have heard this, is that if I confess the name of Jesus as my Savior, then God is somewhat obligated to save me from death. I mean, I've, I've done the formula, I've said what I need to say, and, you know, if I, if I do that, hey, I'm in like I'm a made man. I have his grace, I've got this assurance of salvation, so I don't really need to worry too much about what happens between now and then, because I'm in. That's what Romans 6.14 can be used to teach. Now, it's not my purpose today in this, this uh, message to do a full exposition of the law and its role in the new covenant. We've talked about that. We'll talk about it again. But let's just go to the next verse, okay? 
Let's go to the next verse in Romans 6. Verse 15. So after that statement, okay, I'm not under law, we're not under law, but under grace. Here's what comes right after it. So what does that mean? Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? No! By no means. You can't, not, I don't know if Paul said it exactly that way, but no! No, no, no. That is not what you're moving. You're heading in the wrong direction. Now, even, you know, even the popular ideas about God's grace, which I've tried to kind of paraphrase here, the idea that his grace is just this never-ending forgiveness only really makes sense if there's law. Otherwise, you know, what are you forgiving me of? Grace is God showing his favor and his acceptance to those who are making the effort to overcome sin. And what is sin? What's the scripture that we go to for that? What is sin? Anyone know? Memory scripture? Well, I'm going to go to a different one. I'm going to go to 1 John 3, verse 4. That's a good one. I think that's a memory scripture. 1 John 3, verse 4. I used to have this stack of memory cards. I think I had about 200 scriptures. I got it when I was a student. And I'd memorize all these. So that's what I mean when I say memory scriptures. Stuff you just want to beat into your brain by brute force. So you know it. Memory scripture. 1 John 3, verse 4. For everyone who sins practices lawlessness. In fact, sin is lawlessness. Sin is not having or living by God's law. In his goodness and his grace, God wants you to know how he thinks and how he acts, right? And he wants you to put that way of thinking into your heart. Because as I mentioned earlier, that's the way of peace. That brings peace and that brings joy. So he gives you his law, this light in the dark place. He gives you his law and he convicts you through his spirit that this is the way. Now, as you learn, you make mistakes, right? You make mistakes. Sometimes, actually, we only learn by making mistakes. You know that. If you've ever tried to teach something to one of your children... They only learn by making a mistake. How do you learn that stoves are hot? A lot of times you learn by putting your silly little finger on the stove. <laughs> Sometimes we learn by making mistakes. Now when we, when we fall down, when we fall short of the glory of God, we can give up. You could give up. You could say, okay, now I've sinned. I've done it now. There's no hope. But we don't, do we? That's not how we respond. That's not what we do. What do we do? We get back up. We get back up on our feet when we've fallen. We brush the dirt off and we get back at it. We get back at it. We repent. We pray. We seek his forgiveness. If we don't get back up and fight again, then we're showing that we really don't have desire to do what it takes to learn God's way. The way of peace, the way of joy, the way of eternity. God wants to see that in us. And frankly, people who, who you know, don't demonstrate that they want it won't be there. 
Now, God also does not want you or me to be destroyed because of a mistake. A mistake that you make while learning. So in his amazing grace, he provides a way to pay the penalty for your sin. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Think of it this way. Let's say you're a music teacher. You're teaching guitar lessons. Okay, you're going to teach guitar lessons. And you give the student the understanding of where all the notes are, how to put the fingers on the guitar properly, the music and all that kind of stuff. And uh, then you say, well, you know what? Now that you know all this stuff, if you make a wrong note, if you hit an A flat instead of an A, I'm going to have to kill you. <laughs> now, if you were a music teacher, first of all, I don't think you'd have a lot of students. <laughs> and if you did have students, I don't think they'd last very long. And I, I put it to you that in some ways, God is like that. You're his students. He's your teacher. And he doesn't want you to go down the drain just because you make mistakes. He wants you to learn from the mistakes. Okay, Psalm 19. Go to Psalm 19, verses 7 through 9. I mean, if you had a, if you had a student, you know, and, and you're teaching this, this stuff on guitar, piano, whatever, and they refused to listen, they refused uh, to practice, they always purposefully hit the wrong notes, you'd probably want to drop them as a student. Psalm 19, verses 7 through 9, it says, The law of the Lord is perfect refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. And the decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. The revelation of his law, which he's given to you, is an outpouring of his grace, and as much an outpouring of his grace as forgiveness. And part of our larger understanding of what is biblical grace. Go to Second Peter 3. We'll look at verses 14 through 18. At the end of his life, Peter writing here says, So, dear friends, he's writing this to you, the church, since you are looking forward to all this stuff, the day of the Lord is what he's been talking about, Make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote to you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do other scriptures to their own destruction. Therefore, Dear friends, since you have been forewarned, be on guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of the lawless and fall from your secure position, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Growing in grace and knowledge means avoiding lawlessness. Avoiding lawlessness. What is lawlessness? Breaking God's law, having no regard for it. Grow in grace and knowledge. Take the precious gift that's been given with you and run with it. Run to win. 
Let's take a look at how uh, some other examples. Grace, uh, God's grace upon the church. Acts 4, verse 33. Talking here about the first heydays of uh, the church after that uh, first Pentecost. And it says in verse 33, With great power the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully, was very powerfully at work in them all. Then it goes on to talk about all their good deeds towards one another. Uh, they took care of others and took care of each other. So this is saying God's grace and his favor was on the church, was working in the church, as he was extending his grace into the church. And his great power, like we talked about with the you know, leaf blowing, uh, smoothed things out for them. It smoothed things out for them so that, one, they could proclaim the good news. They could proclaim the good news. And it was also at work within the members so that they showed great brotherly love towards one another. And again, here's an example of where we see the results of God's grace, God's grace being poured out. And the results are not tied to the forgiveness of sins. Here we see them as um, power in teaching and brotherly love. Now with that in mind, you know, since we're talking about it and we operate as a church, please, Pray for God's grace and favor upon the church. We are the mechanism, the tool, if you will, through which God is still graciously providing enlightenment. We put together a Sabbath service every week. You know, we've got a sound system, we've got songs, we've got chairs, we rent a place, we have a message prepared. Where are the students? I mean, you're here. You support. But where are all the students? Well, God's grace will make that happen. Now, all I can say is pray that God shows his favor to us at this time, that the work that we do, as significant or insignificant as it is, has fruit. Please, pray. I think you will find that we will do better as a congregation. I think that we will have more effectiveness as a, the entire church in the local area, if you pray. So please, join me in praying for the church as a light that shines in a dark place. Let's take a look at one last application of grace. Go to Romans 11, verses 5 through 6. Grace and calling. As I mentioned earlier, you know, God just kind of reached out to people and gave them all these positive things, not because they were so awesome, but because he is so gracious. Romans 11, verse 5 through 6 says, uh, speaking here, it's talking about the sort of the, the transfer, if you will, of you know, the, the, the designation of God's chosen people from the nation of Israel to the church. And it's speaking to the church here and trying to help them work through this and understand how it all works together. In verse 5, it says, So too, at the present time, there is a remnant. That's the church. A remnant drawn out of Israel. Actually, drawn out of the Jewish people at that time. There is a remnant. A remnant. Chosen by grace. Chosen by grace. And if by grace, 
then it cannot be based on works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. Now, again, God did not have to reach out to you. He did not have to extend the right hand of fellowship to you. He wasn't obligated to. It's not like, I mean, you performed some mighty work or something like that. He didn't have to do anything, but he did. He reached out his hand. He doesn't have to give you enlightenment. He doesn't have to reveal his laws and his way of life to you. He doesn't have to do that. He didn't have to provide a payment for your sins either. He didn't have to do that. He didn't have to give you his spirit. And he is not obligated to give you eternal life. It is his gift. He is not obligated to do any of that stuff for you. But he offers you all these things. He does. He offers them all to you as an expression of who and what he is. So they're all yours. You get them all, if you want them. They're an expression of God's graciousness, who and what he is. He's friendly. He wants to have a positive relationship with you. He's upbeat. He wants to smile when he sees you walking down the road. That's the relationship that God wants with you. And he wants you to have that with him as well. That's his grace being extended to you. And we looked at some scriptures. We walked through this definition of grace. And I think we understood that God will show himself gracious to the one who is humble. The one who is willing to listen. The one who is willing to learn. The one who is willing to walk with him in righteousness. In uprightness of character and conduct. And he doesn't owe you a thing. He doesn't owe you anything. But he wants to share everything with you. And that is biblical grace.